So good morning, everyone. We're on the fourth session of a series which uh, came about uh, right after I was in a retreat environment for some time. And this is a series that I've... uh, called from the ordinary habitual mind to the Buddha mind. And I think probably better, particularly in light of what we'll talk about today and what I've talked about, maybe better to call from ordinary habitual being to Buddha being. (laughs) So the, the idea is to chart the parameters of our practice. And I've identified 10 different parameters and we could say that we, in a sense we develop in all 10 of them. And these were the first parameter that I looked at is the nature of our thinking. And uh, last time I looked at how our experience of the body is in, with our, as it were, our starting point more ordinary and habitual and then how that develops as well. And we could also, I think, uh, the one that I'll look at after the body is is also looking at the emotional life, what we sometimes call the heart, and how that develops. And then there are seven other parameters. We could also, if we wanted to, I mean, friends have said, I think this sounds like a book. (laughs) We could also see how along each of the parameters there are particular particular developmental pathways. In other words, there, we could say that e- for each of these parameters, we could almost see different stages of development. I can certainly see that looking at my own experience over a number of years, you know, practicing over 40 years. I can see how the experience of thinking changes, how the experience of the body changes over time. So I'm not going to get that complicated, but um, do want to particularly focus on how we practice uh, in the uh, you know for each of these parameters, and in pointing to the practice, I'll point to a series of practices, some of which are more entry level practices, some of which are more intermediate, some of which are more advanced. You know, hoping that uh, in pointing to the practices each of us will say, oh, that's a good one for me. So we started out by looking at the nature of what we could call ordinary habitual thinking. And uh, last time, looked at the ordinary habitual experience of the body. And by ordinary habitual, I'm particularly talking about mainstream contemporary Western culture because I think it's, they're very, very different contexts. That'll be actually a point that I'll, I'll bring out in different ways. And when we, I'll, I'll do a little bit of review of what we looked at in terms of ordinary habitual thinking in the body, because they're quite related, as we know. And, uh, and again, the emphasis is going to be on pointing the practice. I'll primarily focus on pointing to a number of body practices, and again, to see which of those call us, what seems right now. We could, uh, again, have the rest of the year, every week, and focus on body practices, and it would be time actually quite well spent. It's a, it's a deep area. Interestingly, from a, a developmental perspective, or even an evolutionary perspective, we can see some of the background for why practices with uh, our thinking and especially for today with uh, nature of our bodily bodily experience, our somatic experience uh, are so important. Generally, Generally speaking, from a human evolutionary point of view, at a certain point in history, which in the West was especially, uh, came with the ancient Greeks, there started to be a differentiation out more of thinking 
from the rest of experience and what we call sometimes our rational capacities were developed more, you know, and we particularly locate this with some of the Greek philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and so forth. And there was a way in which thinking was juxtaposed, and this is very explicit with someone like Plato, was juxtaposed to the body and to the emotions. Uh, it's a little bit different setup in Asian context and in, in, in the teaching of the Buddha. But in the West, we have that differentiation out and thinking uh, is, giving, is given a very privileged place. And it's taken to be a more important dimension of experience than the experience of the body and the experience of the emotions. You know, in, in that period of time, the emotions are at best something that supports the rational process. You know, if you need to do something, courage can help you to do what your reason tells you is important. That sort of thing, right? And you know, the history of the West is quite complicated and convoluted, at, uh, and you know, generally speaking, this differentiated this differentiated thinking soon got caught up with generally in the you know, mainstream culture of the West got caught up with religious dogmatism, you know, particularly in what we call Christian culture, right? And there came about another reform movement in the starting in the uh, 17th century, which we call the period of the enlightenment in Western culture, where once again there was a need to differentiate out thinking and reason. Here it was uh, juxtaposed with uh, dogmatism, with you know just simple belief in religious uh, dogmas, and uh, that was the at least the self understanding of the people who were you know that we know of as the Enlightenment philosophers, and the the importance for us is that this really starts to set the context for how our experience uh, is organized by the culture, by our conditioning. That uh, the period of the Enlightenment differentiates out thinking, and particularly in the forms, in two main forms. One is of science, and one is of the capacity to look at social and political issues with reason, with clear thinking. Obviously, there are ups and downs in the progression of that <laughs> intention. Right? And, and, you know, uh, all sorts of... And we, we're now in a what the Southern Baptists call a backsliding moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what's, what's interesting is that the thinking gets differentiated out. And again, there are different views on how it's supposed to relate to the emotions and the body, but thinking is clearly privileged. There also are strong gender dimensions to this, that thinking is more associated, at least historically, with men, and emotion and the body more with women. There also are... Uh, demand, you know, this is also connected with the racism of the time that, again, that uh, those who are thought to be less advanced are more caught up with the body and emotions, right? And so there are all these interweaving of dimensions, which, again, is right there in the conditioning up to our time, right? So, um, you know, I getting male conditioning was not taught how to be emotionally intelligent, Right? And again, there are a lot of intentions to correct that conditioning, but that, a lot of that conditioning is right up to uh, the present moment in many ways. And so for our purposes, what's important is that there's this emphasis on differentiating out thinking from the body and from emotions. And again, from a cultural point of view, many different dimensions to the issues. It's also, we looked at last time, you know, arguably this differentiation out from the body is also 
it's connected with the way that thinking uh, is taken to be something that can master nature, right? And so uh, I think the disconnection from the body is related to the disconnection from the earth body, we might say. I mean, can, a lot of people try to connect these different threads. Again, from the point of view of our personal practice, what's important is that the thinking seems to, we have a lot of conditioning in which the thinking is separate from the body. And in a certain way, even though uh, our time, there's a lot more attention to the body, there also are these furthering of these tendencies, particularly with the development, the further development of computers and other electronic devices, where one can actually many in our culture and increasingly spend the whole time more or less in a mental realm. You know, just focusing on thinking, disembodied, even to a large extent disconnected from other people. Like certain, you know, one, you know, what we would say dystopian or negative vision of our evolution is that it ends up with everyone looking at their screens in isolation from each other and trying to communicate in some way. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of positives from the, from the electronic devices, but we can also see those tendencies in which the thinking just gets differentiated out and people live in a mental realm, right? And so one of the ways to look at positive evolutionary development is to see the need to reconnect with the body, reconnect with emotions, keep what's valuable about this differentiated thinking and bring them all together and integrate our lives more. And again, arguably that has a lot of social and cultural implications as well. We can see again, I think it has a lot of implications for gender and how we raise boys, girls, and those not quite meeting those categories, right? That, you know, what is it, what, what is it like when everyone has what we call emotional intelligence and has access to body awareness? So that's more or less the, for me, the uh, context of our practice. That, again, our conditioning tends to have us not be so aware and, uh, of our bodies in, in terms of the focus for today and more identified with thinking. And again, it's uh, something which even though there are gender dimensions, there can be, you know, all, all this affects all of us, right? And, you know, one can be, have, be raised as a female, as a woman and still be primarily being in the mental realm. You know, in fact, in many ways to join the, what, the, uh, you know, to have some equalization of power, some of that's almost required, right? You know, if, if uh, again, there, there are a lot of complexities to this. So that's the backdrop for our practice. And, you know, what I've done in looking at thinking and what I'm doing in looking at the experience of the body is I've tried to do it in three ways. One is to identify what's the ordinary habitual sense of the body. What are some of the what are some of the ways that it develops towards the kind of what we could call the Buddha body? <laughs> and then thirdly and most importantly, how do we practice to get there? So that'll be the focus the rest of the time. But I wanted to give that uh, sort of evolutionary context because I think it makes a lot of sense of phenomena. And we can see, again, we can see, I mean, again, what, you know, uh, the social cultural dimension of the differentiation out of thinking where it's not so connected with the emotions and the body that we might say would be the way that science and technology get disconnected and not really connected with our values, our deeper heart and so forth, I would say. I would say there's some parallels there. So that's our conditioning. For many of us, the ordinary habitual relation to the body is that of not being very aware of the body. And that was certainly my conditioning and probably that conditioning 
to a significant extent for most of us, I would say. Um, so my conditioning was simply not to be aware of the body. I've mentioned sometimes the story of while I was a student walking uh, as a student, I was living in Germany at the time, and I had that experience of realizing I'm thinking all the time. I'm not aware of my body at all. I'm like consciousness on a pole <laughs> or something like that. And, and how many of us can relate to having had some conditioning which led us to something like that? We were just thinking a good deal of the time, right? So okay, maybe, let's have a true pole. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. I, I did a workshop a few weeks ago with a guy named David Kempf, who, who does some very interesting work, particularly related to um, uh, working, sort of anti-racism work connected with uh, uh, going against political polarization. And one of the tools that he uses, he has these devices, which I think he, he developed, where, which um, uh, you give this little device, no bigger than this, to everyone in the hall, and you ask them a question, like, how do you, you know, out of these three choice, five choices, where do you stand? You know, and you, everyone presses the button, and then he has a screen up here, and instantly the views of the whole group appear. It's pretty interesting for doing work together. I don't know. Well, maybe we'll do that sometime. <laughs> you can have Spirit Rock invest in that technology. It's a very interesting technology uh, for what he was doing. And so, uh, yeah, and so uh, that sense, or, you know, it's in the James Joyce line in uh, the story of Mr. Duffy, who lived a short distance from his body, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it brings out that, that flavor. So for many of us, there was... Uh, there was that conditioning. And that, that was the case even though for many of us we may have been very physically active, right? So it's not about not being embodied, doing exercise. I would, I've mentioned a number of times I was a competitive swimmer for 10 years, but still not very aware of my body, generally. You're my, my default consciousness was thinking. Again, it's kind of what we're supposed to do in certain models of being, of being a student. Uh, and I've reflected last time on how this lack, general lack of awareness of the body may be related with certain health issues. It ha- may have certain negative physical dimensions as well that we may, you know, that we may not eat so well, not exercise, not tune into how the body's feeling. You know, that that may may be the case. I think not necessarily. One can probably have very good habits and not be aware of the body at all. I think that's possible. I think I probably did, more or less. And so, uh, but it can, it can, I think in the culture it does that. And we can also, again, we may not be so aware of just multiple manifestations of the body related to our own being. You know, I mentioned last time I was here that uh, the... Uh, work that I do with transforming the judgmental mind, which gets out a lot of very deep, relatively unconscious limiting beliefs that we have, a belief, I'm not okay, or this is a problem, that that manifests as well in the body, and that we can actually use the body to uh, transform those unconscious tendencies. So what does, what does the, what does our practice become when we've deeply integrated the body. And it's interesting that the, the Buddhist practice starts with mindfulness of the body. You know, that they, you know, they didn't have the same kinds of conditioning that we had, but still uh, mindfulness of the body was where, we, where they started. And so where the practice goes is towards full mindfulness of the body. I would say, from again, from a social, cultural point of view, evolutionary point of view, it goes towards the integration of the thinking with the heart, with the body. We have access to all of these, all of these uh, dimensions. 
and we we have a certain high development. Now, I'll get in a moment to to the practice, but I think one of the one of the ways that we probably need to practice before we bring these together is we have to do differentiated practice just to gain body awareness. You can't bring them all together at once. So many of us have developing our, developed our thinking to a large degree. You know, I, I have often found myself saying, this is partly having a, a PhD, I have developed my thinking process quite enough for this lifetime. Thank you. <laughs> right, and have wanted to connect, you know, a lot of the work is more connecting it with the development of the heart, the development of the body. That's, that's on a more individual level. And so where I think our practice goes is towards having well-developed uh, thinking capacities. And by the way, you know, I've, I think of one of my Tibetan teachers who is very conscious of Western conditioning and the, you know, he sees completely the need to develop more body awareness. He says, you know, in my community and more the Tibetan community, they could use more thinking. That's his own, his own perspective. You know, develop clearer thinking. Very good. Maybe we can trade. Because <laughs> they're very grounded, you know, somatically. Uh, and so where we go is towards, I think, the high level of thinking, high level of development of the body awareness, and high level of development of the heart, integrating them together. That's probably our, that is well within the reach, I think, of all of us, right? We can train in those ways and then, and then uh, integrate together the different uh, dimensions. You know, and beyond that, there are yet more uh, advanced ways of developing the body, which is, I think, probably beyond the scope of what we do here. I mentioned last time that uh, um, there are practices that work with what's often called the subtle energy of the body. You know, and some of us may be doing practices like qigong or some ways to do yoga where one does pranayama, the way yoga was originally in India. One brings in the subtle energy system of the chakras and so forth. And there are a lot of more advanced practices which actually transform the body at the level of the energetic system. And so one can develop more fully in that way. Um, Another way that was pointed of, of what the more, uh, you know, the fuller development of body awareness looks like was pointed to by the Buddha where he said, in the experience of the body, one sees also impermanence, one can see reactivity, one can see uh, experience without having a sense of an independent separate self. These are the, for we may remember these are the three marks of uh, liberating insight that all of our practice aims at. The liberating insight into impermanence, the liberating insight into the nature of dukkha, which I like to translate as reactivity, and the liberating insight into the nature of the self, into what's called not-self, the lack of an independent, permanent self. And so the experience of the body also functions to develop wisdom. So this is, this is some of where we're going to. So as they say, the what, the, what used to be called the $64,000 question, is there a counterpart now? <laughs> is how do you get there, right? How do we practice? And that's, you know, for me, this is always the emphasis of our morning sessions. How do we practice? How do we, how do we develop? And I was thinking that... Uh, for myself, mindfulness of the body and doing body practice says, has been really, really central. And I can see a number of different stages in my own practice. My initial practice, the coming to awareness of the body, was what I primarily did for the first three years or so in different ways. Mindfulness of the breath, walking meditation, being more aware of the body, and it brought me out of that phase of, being, of consciousness on a pole. That doing the meditation practice first in formal meditation, then later bringing it out into daily life, was totally revolutionary. Gosh, 
I can have awareness of the body. Gosh, I can have, I can have my senses working and see, especially for me, seeing uh, a sunset, seeing a tree without instantly being uh, consumed by thinking, without triggering thinking, was mind-boggling, right? And again, I think that's the experience which many of us have when we first meditate, that we develop the capacity not to be dominated by our thinking. It opens up the experience of the body, right? How many can relate to that as something that's been significant? And it's, it's, you know, it's one of the things which sort of, quote-unquote, sold me on meditation. Wow, it just opens up this other way of experiencing not dominated by thinking, where one can just be with the senses, where one can come back to one's senses, so to speak, where one can be with bodily experience, you know, and it opened up that direct experience of the beauty of nature. It opens up the direct experience of uh, a mind that's still and the way that opens up uh, experience, you know, and one can experience the body in a different way. And it opened up also uh, this, this, what I call this more subtle energy in the body. When, one, one minds, when one's mind gets still, the, one can tune in to the more subtle energies of the body. And a lot of those initially are extremely pleasurable. This is what we call in Buddhist practice, piti, P-I-T-I. And there's a, you know, it initially can be a kind of tingling and a kind of, eventually it can be this uh, bliss in all the parts of the body. And, you, and a lot of meditation, especially this happens on retreats, one just sits with a blissful body for days on end. No wonder people come back. Right? Or, or, again, it's... Uh, it's one of, it can get attached to it, it can be a problem, but it's something that opens up. So for me, that was my, especially the beginning of my practice, just to start to be more aware of the body, and it was, you know, it was amazing, right? And then a second phase happened probably 20 years later. And this was a phase of prolonged practice, uh, probably about four years of really focusing on the body and sort of taking it to another level. And this was where I had as my primary meditation object the whole body. And in in my formal meditation, then in daily life, I tried to be aware of my whole body. And this was especially valuable for making the awareness of the body available in daily life, in the flow of experience. Because even though I could be aware of my body in meditation and I could be aware of it when I was really focusing, like in walking. It was still hard to have awareness of the body if I was at a meeting or if I was talking, right? Or if I was, you know, let alone being at the computer, right? And so the second phase of practice helped take it, you know, quite a bit deeper. And it was, again, a, a very much a body-focused practice. And there were a lot of subtleties to it that I, maybe I can bring out as I go further. And then there was, I think, a third phase, which was, in a way, continuing what, some of what I just mentioned. And this was especially when I was starting to teach a lot on speech practice. It became really clear that to one of the dimensions of speech practice is to have inner awareness at the same time that one's talking. It's to bring awareness of the body into situations in which there's thinking involved, such as right now. You know, so uh, a lot of the second phase of body practice I did was with uh, a mentor, John Travis, who's for many years been a colleague and I was starting to give Dharma talks at Spirit Rock at that time. It was almost 20 years ago. And John's guidance for my Dharma talks was simple. You know, do your preparation and then stay in your body and stay in your heart and let your thoughts self-organize. <laughs> that was the guidance. I thought it was very, very good. You know, because it's basically saying your thinking is well-developed enough. Don't worry much about it. But yeah keep aware of the body and try to stay with your heart 
as you teach. And, you know, and that's also could be guidance just for interacting with people, right? And so uh, that was not easy. And so it was really necessary to give special emphasis. How do I bring that awareness of the body and the heart into the process of speech communication? So you can do your counterpart right now. You know, one of the starting practices would be to like be aware of your hands. If you can be aware of your whole body, that's great. But just to be aware of your hands right now or be aware of your contact with the, of your feet with the, uh, the floor or the cushion. Can you do that? Can you have 20% inner awareness of the body and 80% listening? John actually gave me guidance 50-50. 50% inner, 50% outer. Can you try that? See, the places that you practice this, and this is a great technique for developing more body awareness in daily life. And again, the, the uh, finding is that to really bring uh, mindfulness and a sense of being present into a pretty mental culture, mindfulness of the body is key. So some small ways to practice right now, be aware of some aspect of your bodily experience, and it requires a little bit of divided attention, which at first can feel awkward, but get used to it. Get used to it. Uh, And so when I'm talking now, I'm trying to be aware of my whole body. That's my intention. And the talking comes. And again, when you're first doing it, it can feel, this feels a little weird. But stay with it. And you can practice it particularly when you don't have to do anything, like being more uh, receptive or passive at a meeting. Or um, can, can practice in that way. So... This is sort of a further level of practice. Uh, that again, I'm giving a little bit of my own biography as a way to point to this. So, let's go back and look at some other some practices that sort of come back to, uh, in, in a way, go through those three phases that I mentioned. I'll give different practices, then we'll open things up for discussion in a short time. So, the initial practice for some of us is going to be just in our formal meditation bringing awareness to some aspect of bodily experience. And that in itself is revolutionary. Again, again, for I think the direction that has to be there for many of us is to have specially focused mindfulness of the body in some way. We develop that to a certain point and then we can integrate it more with thinking and with emotions. But I'm saying that it's more helpful to practice and not try to do too much integration you know, it's helpful just to really get the body awareness really developed enough and then you can integrate it. That's, that's what I have found with myself and working with others. So initially, we can work with mindfulness of the breath. And that, in, like I say, that in itself is revolutionary. If I've been thinking as I was in my own life, my whole life, and I start being able to be aware of the breath, I interrupt that constant thinking. You know, and I, you know, again, a lot of our experience initially is we're with the breath and we think for 10 minutes, oh, in, out, in, out. What am I going to say to William this evening? Maybe I'll say this. Maybe I'll say that. Well, that, would, that wouldn't be so good. No. 10 minutes goes by, <laughs> right? Oh, oh, the breath, in, out. Right, right. So um, that's our training, and then you know, uh, it depends on the conditions. But the more we keep coming back, in a sense, we're coming back to the body, right? And we do something similar with walking meditation. We just say, "I my focus is totally on the body," and so we can do this in formal meditation. That's why it's so valuable to do that every day. We have a period. Essentially, our main ways of doing formal practice are developing mindfulness of the body. Those are the starting practices that we offer, right? They're both walking meditation, meditation with the breath especially. Those are both forms of uh, formal meditation. And then we can also find ways 
in our daily life to have that sense of mindfulness there. You know, a practice might be, which, which I did initially when I was meditating, I was a student living in Boston, I didn't have a car, I was using public transportation all the time, as certain, and I was complaining about not having enough time to meditate, and suddenly I had the brilliant insight, I walk about an hour a day, because you know, I have to use public transportation, I do a lot of walking. Let's have all my walking be mindfulness of the body practice. You can do that, right? You can say, every time I'm walking, let me be practicing mindfulness of the body. That's what I did, and all of a sudden I had another hour of practice every day, right? You know, and I could notice my tendencies to start thinking, oh, you know, but, you know, mindfulness of the body. So we can, uh, we can do that, we can bring in more walking. Anyone does yoga, qigong, make it mindfulness of the body. Do yoga and say, I'm going to really stay with awareness of the body rather than comparing my posture to my neighbor, <laughs> which sometimes happens. <laughs> okay. and, and so we can use practices like that, you know, uh, different, maybe you run, do certain exercise, make it mindfulness of the body. We can do, uh, we can do certain physical activities. Let me do, have mindfulness of the body when I'm washing dishes. Right? The, you know, the, the, the key is finding activities which are primarily body-based, where, which you already are doing, where you're not adding any more time to your schedule and say, I'm going to make this mindfulness of the body. That's the key. Right? If you have to add something to your schedule, it's like a hundred times harder. <laughs> if there's something that's already happening, like walking to, for even walking the five minutes from your, maybe your car to your office, or, you know, make that walking meditation. Right? These are ways to practice. Find little five or ten minute periods for walking meditation, uh, bringing in your body. Then, again, maybe more uh, advanced practices would be bringing in some of those techniques like trying to have some awareness to your body when you're listening, especially when you don't have to do anything when you're more passive. Right? You can bring in some of those practices. But the initial practices are these practices where you ju- we just hang out with mindfulness of the body. Once we have that somewhat developed, when we have more focus on the body, we can bring in some more developed practices. And I, I also want to say, I want to bring in, maybe before going further, bring in that uh, important dimension that uh, I mentioned the last time, which is that for me, being with my body was, even though it was hard initially, it was workable. If any of us have anything like trauma, or even if when you're meditating, something difficult has happened and we're kind of emotionally activated, uh, then one can't always be comfortable with the awareness of the body. And if there's something like uh, traumatic activation, uh, then it's important to do some things which prevent that from taking over our experience. So for some people, there's not a sense of being safe enough in the body to have mindfulness of the body. I just want to mention that as a qualification. And there may be moments also when we're really activated by something that happened. And maybe, maybe there's not trauma, but there's, maybe there was a really difficult interaction with someone. Right? And it's important to know some practices that are really body practices for helping with that level of activation. Right? And these, these, some of these come from my colleague Heather Sundberg and come from uh, particularly the work of Peter Levine who developed a method of working with uh, trauma called somatic experiencing, which both Heather and I have been trained in. And so... Uh, there's a, a lot we could go there, but I'll just mention a few things, and maybe we even will do the practices as I say them, because they're very simple. So one practice to do if you're meditating and there's a lot of activation, again, maybe something really difficult happened, you have your eyes closed and you just feel your system is a little bit out of whack, 
right? What you can do is open your eyes and try this right now and look around and find something that's really pleasant to look at. You know, I'm looking at the ceiling and the beautiful sort of geometrical forms. But let's look around, find something that's pleasant and just stay with it. So this is valuable to do. This is called orienting. And this is valuable to do when there's activation in the body. Because part of the practice with the body is knowing what to do when there are difficult experiences in the body. And that actually, uh, you know, generally open the, opening the eyes is better. And also uh, finding something pleasant is helpful. So that's one technique. Another one could be called grounding or finding one's resources. And this could be where you, um, where you just find some part of your experience which is more comfortable. A lot of it might be to maybe feel the ground. This is why taking a walk, feeling the earth could be helpful. You know, interestingly, the Buddha, when he was challenged in his night of awakening by Mara, who could be represented, represents the forces of delusion, the Buddha at that point, you could say, you know, I mean, we, we don't know from the text, but he was, maybe he was feeling very challenged, a little bit activated, hard to say. And what he did was he touched the ground. He touched the earth. And he said, the earth is my witness that I have a right to awaken, more or less like that. And it's something that we can do is like really, one's very activated, uh, you know, feel the connection with the earth or ground, take a walk, do something like that. You can also feel the hands maybe connected with something solid. These, these are what we would call grounding techniques, right? And it also is the hands and the feet can be places that uh, sort of let go of activation and reactivity. You know, they're kind of, it goes through in that way. And then another technique, which is a little more advanced, is called pendulation. And that's where when, we, when, when it's kind of workable, we have a difficult experience, we are with the difficult experience in the body as much as is workable, we can handle and then if it gets to be too much, we go to a part of the body or part of our experience, which is more safe, more comfortable. It could be opening the eyes again, being something pleasant. It could be feeling the hands or feet. So those are helpful body practices. And generally, it's helpful to know what to do when the body is activated a little bit out of whack. Right? Those are very important uh, body practices that I think can be part of our uh, toolbox, so to speak. So then, what are some more uh, advanced practices or some further practices beyond what I've mentioned? Um, one of them, one of the ways we can really use the body wonderfully is in, is in well, kind of like the process of inquiring more deeply. And so when we're meditating, and let's say we're caught on some really repetitive kind of thinking, a very, very helpful tool is to bring the awareness into the upper body. Shift away from the thinking. Now this can only happen when we have some access to the body. But we might be having repetitive thinking about something that happened in the morning, let's say earlier in the morning today. Maybe a difficult interaction with a roommate, partner, whatever. And we're thinking over it. Bringing the awareness into the body and then seeing what's there. Sometimes we can actually notice, oh, I can feel the emotions. But it's like that we have to shift away from what we might call the automatic mind into the body. So the body becomes a place where we can actually use it for wisdom. We can go to the body to know what's happening. Very, very helpful tool uh, in meditation or in daily life. Bring the awareness, if we're dominated by thinking and it's repetitive, bring the awareness into the body and just see what's there. And it might be it's just going over this again and again. I might bring it to the body and say, oh, oh, I'm angry. <laughs> you know, one of these so-called blazing insights into the quite obvious. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm angry. You know, you know, but I was caught in my thinking before. And when I touch the anger and feel it in the body, sometimes something gets released. You know, where I don't continue with that 
loop of thinking. Right? They get out of the loop. So the body can be really valuable in that way, just to go to when there's something repetitive happening in the mind. We can really um, experience that and, and often have, have insight. And so that's only going to happen if, we have ac- if we've trained to have mindfulness of the body be accessible. If that's not the case, we'll just be caught in the looping of thinking continually. And so that can be really valuable to see, okay, then, and then to explore it. So again, uh, it can also be the case when there are repetitive emotions. Maybe I'm, I'm in touch with my anger, but then let me explore that, how it is in the body. This is, again, this is a more maybe intermediate level body practice in which we can learn. And I think this helps a lot with the integration. We have something challenging happening in our experience. Can I shift, oh, what's it like in the body? Oh, what's it like at the level of the emotions? Oh, what's it like at the level of the thinking? This is a very powerful practice that helps with the you know, ongoing integration of these parts of our experience. So that can be something that you could do in your formal meditation. Again, it could be done on the spot during the day. Something comes up. I'm kind of upset. Go into the body. Explore it. You know, just a tremendously valuable way to, way to explore. And out of that, typically, some insight comes because what we avoid is just being in the repetitive looping of thinking which is connected with a great deal of suffering. This could be in any kind of way that we get caught in the thinking. The body and going to the body can actually be a way of breaking out of that repetitive looping. Again, we have to be safe enough and okay enough for us to go there. But if that's the case, it can be invaluable. I think probably many of us have used that, just using the body as a resource to uh, uh, not be caught in being judgmental of ourselves or others or caught in some narrative that just keeps repeating over and over again. And maybe one last practice, and we'll open things up, is if you feel called, see if you can start bringing some awareness into times in which you're interacting with others. Again, best way to start with this is maybe at a meeting, or it could be right now, when you don't have to be active and speak, right? <coughs> and so have some awareness of your body. It could be 20%, and that will develop the capacity. You know, again, and know that it can be a little, feels a little awkward, in the beginning, but once you get into it. And then practice this in situations where you can. You're with someone who talks a lot. (laughs) Again, you might want to at some point speak up, but if it looks like you're okay with listening for five minutes, just rest back and be aware of the body as well as any emotions, perhaps irritation or being judgmental. Right. right. So maybe I'll, I'll end with that. So I think we have a spectrum of practices, some ranging from more entry-level body practices to more advanced practices. And my hope is that one of these resonates and we want to make it a focus until next time. So, yeah, let's just sit for a moment and see, does one of these practices, and maybe more than one, maybe two, appeal to you. I mean, we could do mindfulness of the body in our formal meditation, walking meditation, and then say, being aware of the body with dishes, that's for me. Okay, so just see which of the ones we've looked at uh, calls, calls you. So let's have some time if there are any 
questions, uh, reflections, comments, stories, reports, and we'll we'll use the microphone. Um, so you're talking about noticing body, mm-hmm. thinking, and heart. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about heart, are, is that another way of saying your emotional repertoire? Yeah, yeah. So, good question. Now, we haven't, haven't so much got into that, but sometimes we use heart as a way of pointing to the emotions. That's how I was using it. Yeah, so it's simply, again, this is a more Western way of dividing up experience into three parts, and it has some... Uh, correspondence to the current research on the brain. You know, you have the the more body-based part of the brain connected especially with survival. You have the limbic system more connected with emotions, with empathy and so forth. And then you have the neocortex. And so there are the, these three parts, the thinking, the emotions, and the body. And uh, the Buddha and more the Asian Buddhist models tended to divide uh, experience up into two parts in which there was the body and then the uh, thinking and emotions were combined into what was called citta, C-I-T-T-A. And they actually don't have a distinct word that we would translate as emotion, interestingly. But, but I was going more on the Western model. Yeah. Any questions about the practice? Yeah, please. Um, so kind of queuing off what you just said, we talk about mindfulness and we talk about monkey mind and using the mind and all these, um, training the mind. Yeah. But from, is that like an accurate translation of what's going on? Or is that, like you say, a Western frame? Because if we're talking about somatics, then it sounds like we're talking more about experience Mm -hmm. than focusing on the mind in which even training that some ways seems like it enhances the split. Yeah, yeah. We have to watch out. Thank you for the question. We have to watch out for some of these phrases. And even a word like mindfulness, I think, is an unfortunate translation because it makes it think like we're being... Um, we're, our aim is to have fullness of mind. And mind is used ambiguously in different contexts. Sometimes it's used to refer to thinking, and sometimes it's used to refer to all of experience. It's just used differently. Mindfulness, the word mind, really is about all of experience. So a more accurate translation, at least in terms of meaning, not in terms of elegance, would be mind, mind, heart, body, fullness. Right? And so we just have to be aware that uh, the words are used in, in different ways. And so what we're really pointing to with our word mindfulness, and some people prefer awareness, for example, as a translation. What we're looking at is to be able to be fully present with uh, initially the differentiated aspects of experience and then all the aspects together in just normal experience. And so there is in the uh, classical training and what we call mindfulness the initial training is focused on the body. And then the second and third aspects focus on aspects that we call more mental-emotional. And so the second foundation of mindfulness, as many of you know, is focused on what we call feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right? Which, when that's there, it can lead to different thoughts and emotions. I have an unpleasant experience and I can get angry, sad, mad, whatever. And so then the third foundation is the mindfulness of citta, C-I-T-T-A, which would come under, for us, broadly speaking, it would be uh, thoughts and emotions. Right? And so we first study these in a, in a way that's differentiated. We learn how to be present and aware of what's happening And then the fourth foundation, we more or less bring them together. That's a simplification of the fourth foundation. But in a way, we learn how to be with the constituents of experience. And then we learn how to be with all of experience. And that's very much our training. We need to have that focused attention to the body. If if I just said, be aware right now 
of anything coming through thinking, your body, emotions. And we, and we were at the stage where I was initially, where I, I, couldn't, I wasn't really aware of my body. I wouldn't get anywhere. Right? We have to have this uh, differentiated focus just on the body for many of us. To, and then when that gets developed enough, then we can bring that uh, capacity into just the more normal flow of experience. Yeah, so thanks. So it's, thanks for helping us get clear on the terms because they can be confusing. Yeah, thanks. Okay, we have here and in the middle here and then maybe uh, um, she can be right, ne- right next. Yeah, please. Yeah, I was just... <clears throat> so uh, be aware of your body and then check in and then be aware of your heart and check in and then kind of let your thoughts self-organize. I like that. Yeah. But, but what would be a good indicator of checking in with your heart? What would oh. be a way to do that? Again, this was more uh, on the basis of a lot of period of practice of opening up to the emotions. For me, actually, that instruction was particularly to connect with loving kindness and compassion. But I would say the training of the heart understood as uh, training in emotions would just be to, it could be part of our basic mindfulness practice where we sit and if we get angry, we just say, let me experience the anger. Let me experience the emotional energy, how it is in the body, the narratives that are there. And just having done that for, you know, a lot of hours, that would be the training so that I can actually um, know what's happening. And this can take time, you know, that many of us, have a very primitive emotional vocabulary. When they've done training, particularly for men, they found that men have basic emotional intelligence. This is a broad generalization. It was done some years ago, especially of one particular emotion. <laughs> Anger, you know, right. And that, that's what the research shows. Like, again, there are a lot of exceptions to that, but that's a, that's a broad generalization. And so we, you know, so again, uh, we we get acquainted with the emotions, so that we really know, we really know. Oh, anger! I've hung out with that. Oh, fear! I've hung out with that. Sadness! I've hung out with that. Joy! I've hung out with that. Happiness! I've hung out with that. And that's that's a lot of what our training is. If we stay with the meditation, that's part of what we experience. And retreats really help a lot. In my own learning, uh, I've had retreats where I had, you know, fear or joy or bliss or anger as really primary themes where I just was with them sometimes for, you know, hour after hour. Right. And, th- and that just changes things when one does that. So, so for me, the checking in the heart was on the basis of having already done a lot of practice with the emotions and then also having done a lot of practice with loving kindness and compassion. So that, in that instance, is a little bit different from the other, you know. So thanks. Um, just as I have a... A little, little closer. Okay, just as I have a very chatty brain, I also have a very chatty body. <laughs> chatty body of, uh, oh, the ache in my neck there. Then, all right, move to the breath to try yeah. to uh, focus on the breath. And then goes to my hip area that is uh, with the arthritis. Uh, focus back on the breath. Then try making friends with... But uh, I'm just wondering how you find the balance of um, just <laughs> it's sometimes too much attention on the body. Yeah. Uh, you know, it certainly does um, make you aware of your impermanence, and it certainly you know so it really does contribute in those three areas. Yeah. Uh, but it can become its own distraction, and I wonder how you. Yeah, that's one wonderful important question you know and we looked I think I remember last time we explored uh, looking how how to work with the body with chronic pain you know which some people have I don't you didn't use that language that's so maybe not at that level um, so it's I think a, f- a few things occur to me one is that it's important in terms of our practice to have a general balance of that doesn't discourage us in terms of what we're experiencing, or that you know, 
or that doesn't discourage us too much. So sometimes if we're really focusing a lot on experiences and it's just, you know, a lot, you know, unpleasant experiences, maybe in the body or emotionally, uh, I'm not sure if that, that's, this is the case with you, but, but um, it's just important to um, balance being with more challenging experiences with being with experiences which are really uplifting. That's a general uh, question. So, you know, so for example, if I'm teaching a retreat and there's someone who um, maybe has more physical pain, I'd, we'd want to do practices which just didn't focus, didn't focus mostly on the experience of pain, right? We'd want to bring in, okay, take walks, be with beauty, where I find, okay, is there pain when you walk or is it more with sitting? Oh, it's more when I sit. Oh, do more walking, right? So find the, find the balance. And so that uh, the general sense of practice isn't that, oh, I'm going to have to experience that, which wouldn't have us doing it too much. And so, again, I'm not sure this is completely resonating with, with your experience, but it, it sort of prompts the larger question. So find that balance. And if we find, oh, I'm doing a little bit more that is, eh, I'm not so much looking forward to it, then can I focus on practices which are more uplifting? Maybe I walk, maybe I'm with beauty, maybe I focus on loving kindness and compassion and so forth. So that was part of a response. And then the other piece would be, if there's general balance, you can be, you know, at times with the, um, you know, what could be, a, you know, it sounds like in a minor, in a minor way unpleasant, right? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. And so you could be with that and just uh, watch when the mind reacts. Because there's, there's tremendous learning that can be there with uh, being with unpleasant experiences of the body. Just, I, I've, you know, for me, that I've hung out with unpleasant experiences of the body for hours and hours and hours. The most, you know, I think all of it was something that was not causing damage, not you know, but there sometimes were unpleasant experiences, and one can learn of one's what attachment to the pleasant, which is really, really crucial learning in this practice, and how you how you are with the unpleasant. You know, do we just okay, get out of here, unpleasant, right? That's really, really crucial training. So, and the, then wisdom develops when we do that, and of course we do it in the training and meditation, and then we can bring it out to daily life. And notice, do I have reactivity with this unpleasant emotional experience with a friend or with this unpleasant physical experience? So there's tremendous learning that can come from mindfulness of the body in the unpleasant manifestations. And then maybe last thing would be uh, the sixth uh, area, which I mentioned last time, of practices of mindfulness of the body does have to do with death and practicing and studying impermanence and at times reflecting on the impermanence of this body is a, is a part of almost every spiritual tradition and can be a really valuable experience. Again, it has to be done in, in balance. So, you know, reflecting, oh, um, I'm, I'm tempted to give... It's kind of a joke which I hesitate to say because I've wondered if it's stereotyping, but there's a joke uh, in the Jewish uh, Buddhist humor tradition which go, goes like this. If there's no self, then whose arthritis is this? <laughs> Again, a little hesitant. I think it plays a little bit on stereotypes, but anyway, I, thought it, I, I didn't suppress it when it came through. <laughs> okay, so... So we can reflect on impermanence and, you know, something like, oh, this body is not meant to last forever. Well, it's uh, both very obvious and very sobering, right, in a certain way. And that can be valuable. So, great. So thank you for the question. So let's just sit again to close. We're at, we're at closing time. And again, come back to how would I like to practice uh, Does one of these practices related to 
mindfulness of the body and other ways of practicing with the body. Does one or more of those uh, resonate with me? What might I like to focus on? Especially just one thing. What would I like to focus on in the next period of time? So we'll close with the uh, dedication of merit, a traditional way to end. May the fruits of our morning from our silent practice, from our time together exploring, may the fruits of our practice be there for us, be there for those in our own circles of friends, acquaintances, and so forth, community members. And may the fruits of our practice also be there for all others so that ultimately we offer the benefits of our own time, our own practice to all beings, which includes us. So thanks again and really um, powerful area, isn't it? Really fundamental, important. May your practice on mindfulness of the body thrive. (laughs) 